welcome to More Life the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. And I'm your host, Vinkivia Garner. Thank you for tuning in today with us. So before we even get into the, to today's content, I got this new thing that I really like to do now at the beginning is I want you all, if you enjoy listening to More Life, you enjoy the content that is on this podcast, and you feel like you learn something from us each week, I want you to push that subscribe button on whatever platform you are listening on. It should be on the left, on the right, somewhere down there, but it says subscribe. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram at More Life, the Reentry Podcast, and share an episode with your friend. You never know what information someone may be looking to learn about today. So if you enjoy listening to us, subscribe, follow, and share. And thank you all. So for today's episode, we are going to be talking about um, one of, if you you know about reentry one of the things that they talk about is really the most critical for um successful reentry and that's employment um employment is such a i guess that's the best way to say it it's a critical need for people who are coming out of the system um and wanting to transition back into communities so we're going to be talking about employment and from a variety of different areas just from even moving on just talking about how a criminal record influences opportunities um what are their experiences like for looking for jobs um you know what are difficulties that they may encounter while looking for a job and what are things that we can do uh, as future legislation, um, community members, advocates to support these individuals as they go through this uh, process of finding employment um, and meeting their needs for employment. So to do that, um, I have a very special guest who has a plethora of research in this area, um, and she will be discussing with us this topic. So I want to introduce her really quick. Um, so Dr. Naomi Sugie is an associate professor in the Criminology, Law, and Society Department and co-director of the Center for Population Inequality and Policy at the University of California. And I always say this wrong, but Irving? Irvine. Irvine. There we go. Irvine. Um, wow. She studies punishment and inequality, including barriers to reentry from incarceration and consequences of criminal legal contact for employment, health, and political participation. Um, she has a PhD in sociology and social policy, as well as a specialization in, how did I say this word wrong, as well as a specialization in demography from Princeton University. Um, and th so Dr. Sugie, we're so glad to have you on to discuss the topic that we have today. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited to be here. Well, look, um, I'm excited to have you here um, to talk about this. Like this is an area, if, if people don't know anything about reentry, one thing that always is said as a challenge is employment. Um, and so that's what we're going to be diving into today. But before we even get to our content, like how we always start our episodes off is just wanting to know a little bit more about how you became interested in the research that you are doing or just working with uh, justice-involved populations. Yeah, so um, basically... When I finished college, I started working in New York City at a organization that provided housing to families who were homeless in New York City. 
And I worked there for several years and realized as I was talking with the families, seeing their experiences, hearing their stories, uh, that pretty much they all had criminal records in their past. And that was a barrier to everything. And, and for some of them decades later, you know, that record was still impacting their lives to the point where they were in these homeless shelters, you know, with their families, with their kids. And um, that really motivated me to try to understand criminal record stigma, to understand these barriers. And at the time, as a pretty naive younger person, I thought, well, that's that can be maybe more solvable than homelessness. <laughs> you know, maybe figuring out policies around criminal record, stigma, screening, that that seems really concrete, really tangible. Maybe we can all come together and reform some of those policies. Uh, and then, you know, almost 20 years later, here I am still studying criminal record stigma and <laughs> screening and policies and um and uh, yeah, it's, you know, every, everything is, uh, as you learn more, it becomes more of a challenge. I'll just say that. <laughs> that is definitely true. Um, it gets a little more complicated than what you we may have intended that it would be. Um, but I do think like what you're saying is such a, I, I relate to it in a way because I think as I, as I got older, um, I started to recognize some of the common factors between the people in my neighborhood, the people in my community, um, and kind of where some of the dysfunction may have been rooting from and incarceration, you know, this person's family member was incarcerated. So that put them in this situation. Um, this impacted them in this way because of incarceration or because of they had a criminal record to where their family member couldn't go get employment. Um, and so I, I very much relate to that of like, you just, it just kind of, you when you start looking at the common factors of things, um, you'll be very surprised that like incarceration is something that impacts a lot of people and I always think about when people share their stories with me about how they got involved I always think about that statistic of one in four one in four people have a criminal record um and this just goes to tell you like our stories here of like that's a common factor for a lot of families um and and it's it's, it's a sad thing to see because it is so stifling and it does um cause a lot of pain for people as far as of their life um but I, I do appreciate you for sharing that with me so I guess we can go right into our conversation of you know we're going to be talking about employment today and before we even get to like um some of the specific things that we're going to talk about for employment. Can we just talk about like what employment typically may have looked like for people who are um, incarcerated prior to and, and what type of jobs they were even having? Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, 
as with research generally, a lot of what I might say in terms of the research field will seem like common sense to a lot of your listeners out there. But, you know, I think recently, fairly recently, the research field has had this realization that the jobs before the arrest were not very good, right? And that's one of the reasons why people became arrested, got arrested, had that experience. So it's not just looking at the jobs after the arrest, conviction, incarceration, and seeing that as a challenge, but it's really connecting the challenges of finding a job at reentry to the fact that it was really challenging to find a job even before the arrest, before the criminal record. And that has to do with a lot of these huge macro level changes that have happened just for the United States for transforming the types of jobs that are out there, you know, just in general, you can't get a really good lowered skilled but high paying job like you could decades ago. And for people even without records, um, trying to find a job that doesn't have a lot of uh, schedule instability, that has enough hours, that has a livable wage, all of those things are hard enough nowadays. And then you add in that criminal record and that becomes you know, even more challenging. But it's all to say that the types of jobs that people are able to find these days are really, really different than the types of jobs that people could find decades ago. Um, and that really changes how we think about employment, reentry, all of that. And so when you say like these types of jobs, can you give me an example of like a job um, back in the day versus a job now? Do you care to provide an example there? Yeah, so before there were, um, it was more common that you could get a manufacturing job, um, some sort of, um, you know, union, often union covered job. These days, it's really about the service sector and getting jobs in the service sector. And there are fewer of those other types of jobs out there that can provide a livable wage, that can provide stable hours, some sort of sense of like longer term security. You know, back uh, when, so, you know, many decades ago when we're talking about, and that's actually when some of these earlier reentry studies were done, those reentry studies were looking at jobs that people had had for 20, 30 years after their, their term of imprisonment. So they got out of prison, they were lucky to find one of these manufacturing jobs, blue collar jobs, often union covered jobs in that job that was a good job and they stayed there for decades they created a life a community around that job and that sort of idea uh, and and we know from those studies back then that that job you know meant something really that was core to preventing recidivism for that person because it was such a great job it connected them to lots of other really good co-workers and stability these days, it's hard to even imagine that type of job being available for people. Um, and when we're talking about good job these days, you know, we're talking about maybe some sort of stability, but on week to week, what hours you're going to get, 
and 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 so the lack of stability, the lack of a good um, wage is just really different from before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, like you said, not even talking from a perspective of people having a criminal record, it's hard enough to find a job because employment just in this day and age, the wages don't necessarily line up with the work. Um, you know, people not necessarily wanting to work or wanting to go into business routes. You know, there's not there's a lot of not a lot of opportunities. Um for employment and it's hard to get the employment and it's even harder when you throw that piece in there of a criminal record for sure and and so a lot of these people they end up working low-wage jobs prior to incarceration and they go into incarceration and um then there's just this big gap in employment depending on how long they were incarcerated um and then when they come out uh, they're expected to find um, employment and maintain these kind of stable jobs. So I guess a question that I have for you is um, if you happen to know anything, what are employment rates like right now, as far as of people when they're released? Yeah, that's actually a really tricky question mm -hmm. because there are studies that look at, you know, if you have any, formal labor market job in the first three months, first six months, first year. And, and actually off the top of my head, I do not know what those rates are, unfortunately. Um, but I'll say that the problem with those sorts of studies is that you work one day, you work one week, and you're considered employed. And that is not a really good metric of employment after release because of all this instability, because of the, you know, kind of cycling through jobs, because of the fact that you may get hired on probationary status at a good job, maybe, um, you know, at a warehouse or something like that. But then after three months, you let go, you get let go after that probation period. So, Actually, the way that we measure employment in these sort of big studies, big, you know, looking at rates of employment after release, um, it doesn't really capture the true experience of employment in people's lives when they're moving through jobs, you know, kind of they have a few days of work, but then they're let go when that background check comes back, that sort of thing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense of, especially, and that's something I don't know about research of, you know, how we're, what we're using or how we're operationalizing these um, terms of counting employment, the metrics that we use. Um, that's something that's very new to me for sure. And I imagine that it doesn't capture that full experience. Um, and I know that you've done some work in this area to kind of give us a better idea of what these experiences are like for people um, when they're trying to go out for the job search and, you know, different barriers. Do you care to explain, ex sorry, expand on that and what those experiences are like? Yeah. So one way, you know, because there's all this instability, but we weren't really able to capture it with some of these measures, um, what I did in a study was um, I actually provided 
people coming out of prison in Newark, New Jersey, smartphones. And so, you know, this was back many years ago, actually, back in uh, 2012, 2013. But I gave them smartphones and I asked them about their job search and employment every day for three months. So to try to capture some of this instability that we suspected people were experiencing with their work after release, we handed out phones to people, um, to 120 people coming out of prison and re-entering in Newark, New Jersey. And every day for three months, they reported uh, through their phone survey, actually, you know, how their job search and their work was going. And that way we could see day by day how people's employment experiences were unfolding over those first three months after coming out of prison. And there was so much instability. If people were lucky enough to find work, which was a minority of people, but that for that small group that was lucky enough to find work, they often didn't work the same job, you know, they were actually cobbling together many different jobs week to week, a few days here, a few days there. It was to such an extent of just kind of trying to get whatever you could get, which probably isn't surprising to most of the listeners out there, but it was surprising to think about, you know, just how exhausting it must be to find work when you're trying to get a few days of this, a few days of that, a few days of this, a few days of that, and cobbling together things constantly. You know, work at reentry is supposed to be a stabilizing factor. It's supposed to give you a sense of, you know, being able to have that stability, have that wage to get housing, to kind of start to reintegrate back into your community, to work on your health issues, all of that stuff. But here, if your work is changing day to day and you are trying to cobble together work on a day to day basis and find that every day, that's not giving that's not giving stability, sense of security. And if anything, that can exacerbate your feelings of stress and anxiety, um, you know, and then added on top of that is your parole agent saying, you got to look for work, you got to get work, you got to find work, you got to find good quality work on the books work, you know, and for a lot of people, that's just really out of reach, especially in when you're right coming out of prison. And so I think, given just how hard it is to find a job, coupled with that sort of supervision and all of those requirements, finding work can be just so stressful. And, and and really not giving people the stability for a lot of people, you know, except those lucky few who are able to find jobs. Yeah, so what I'm kind of hearing is people, a lot of times when people come out, and like you said, it's probably not surprising to the listeners of they're really reliant on these kind of odd under the table jobs um, that is giving them, you know, finances for what's what they need right now. And so and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, and that kind of interferes with their ability to be able to thoroughly search for a job. Yes, definitely, right? You can't take a step back. You can't catch your breath. You can't like 
do something. If you're always in survival mode, you know, mm-hmm. it's really challenging to, to really take that step back and conduct a job search, maybe how you would like to conduct it. But if you're in this survival mode, kind of, it, you know, in the immediate months after release from prison, it's just really hard to do that. And so I know you said y'all looked at like up to three months, right? I imagine if people are in survival mode, like you're saying, um, they they didn't make, some people probably didn't make it the full three months, did they? Yeah, we lost a number of people to follow up. And even if they didn't get rearrested during that period, um, a lot, actually a good number of people in our in our project did not get rearrested in the three months, but we lost them to follow up. And I think that, you know, if you looked out for or five months, uh, you know, that you would see higher rates of rearrest among those people that we did lose to follow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. like a, that's a big, uh, that's just another hurdle uh, because like you said, they're not even, even able to extend as much as they'd like to. So I imagine, like you said, they're, they're cut off for looking for a job probably stops very early on of, you know, I'm a month of this or a month or two of this. I got to do what I need to do right now. I can't really pursue that other stuff. Exactly. So, well, we, because we asked people every day about both job search and work for pay, um, we saw that the vast majority of people were reporting that they were looking for work you know, pretty continuously in those first few weeks after being released from prison. But then 75% of those people stopped looking for work after the first four weeks. And that's a much shorter period of job search. One month, that's a short period of job search for anybody. You know, a person who loses their job um, without all the other challenges of reentry, to look for work for one month is a really short period. Um, so we were pretty shocked at like how many people stopped after, you know, four weeks, basically. But when you think about just all the challenges and this kind of cycle, survival mode cycle, then it makes sense. Four weeks could seem like a really long period of time to not be getting anywhere, to be, you know, having all these other pressures on you uh, at reentry. And so, and then, so then you stop and you try to, you know, pivot and go towards other things that may be more promising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, when you were saying that, I was kind of thinking about, you know, I'm thinking about me when I first got my first job, you know, I looked for probably about two or three months to find a job, but I also didn't have those added pressures on me of finding a job. So, you know, four weeks does sound like it is a very short span, but I, I you know, taking into consideration, you got a parole officer who's, you got to meet these stipulations of employment in order to not violate parole. You got family pressures, you may have a kid or all these other different things. I mean, it makes sense. Four weeks, they're like, okay, I haven't found nothing. It's time to move on to the next thing. Yeah. And it's really, you know, people are really aware for good reason Mm -hmm. that that record on their background, um, that's that's really a huge barrier. Mm -hmm. 
you know? And so it's, it's just, it's really, really hard to find a job even without the record. But then when you add that record in, it can be very, very, very challenging. Yeah. And I know also that, you know, just uh, I'm thinking kind of like if they, if these are the jobs that they are pursuing kind of like under the table jobs and they don't have that solid uh, formal record of employment that hurts them even further down the line of because it's still you may have skill sets uh, but you know on paper resume the it's not there because there's just this gap in employment and so it just it just seems like um what's that that domino effect of like things just keep falling or it it, it doesn't keep it doesn't help them yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like all of these factors coming together, not just the criminal record, but the criminal record and the time out of the labor market because of the incarceration and maybe time out of the labor market even before that, that precipitated the incarceration. Um, and then just all the challenges that people have more, more generally finding work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there, there's definitely negative effects to you know, this type of, you know, pursuit of work. Um, and we definitely see that their search stops a little bit sooner than maybe somebody who doesn't have a criminal record because they don't have those pressures. Um, I guess, is there any more insights that you have about what their daily search of works looks like? I don't know if they were looking for certain type of jobs or um, anything else that you may have there. Yeah, so there were a few other interesting things. One thing was that there were a minority of people, like 10, 11% of our, of our sample, who were older people, 45 and older, who were consistently looking for work the whole three months. They rarely found a day of work, but they were consistently, most days, you know, over that entire three month period. And so I think for us, it really showed that, you know, there's, there's, there is this really important relationship between age, crime, recidivism, all of this. And for that older group of people, for whatever reasons that they had, and maybe they had better family support or whatever, but they were really looking for work that whole three months. So they were the exception to what I said before. The other thing that was an interesting thing we found is that the people who did find work and were working a number of days here and there and you know cobbling it all together and and but working a lot of days even if it wasn't the same job but working a bunch of days over this 3 months they were generally the youngest group um and they were reporting that the types of jobs that they were working were really terrible terrible jobs so the group that did find that work that was cobbling together this, you know, they were not necessarily in a better situation. They were working more, but they were reporting really poor jobs. When I say poor, I mean um, uh, much lower wages than the other groups that were finding work, um, even if they were finding work here and there, you know, uh, they reported um uh, that they weren't as safe, that they really were dissatisfied with their work, you know, um, so they were not necessarily the better off group, even though they did find work more consistently. 
And, you know, and that's that's often also just a challenge itself is um, when these individuals are able to find employment, the employment is not the best. And it, it comes with its own effects of, like you say, whether that's, you know, like dissatisfaction, um, wages, uh, and it's almost like they're they're having to settle because I need a job. Uh, and this is what's going to do it for right now. But I have to endure X, Y, and Z in order, you know, to be able to keep this primary need. Um, and that is, that's so sad to hear. Cause like you said, they're not in a better position than anybody else. Um, me thinking I'm like the elderly people that were looking, they probably were in the best. They, they weren't finding a job, but at least they weren't, you know, and yeah, that's just, that's just really disheartening to hear as well too, though. Yeah, it really um, drove home just how challenging it can be in those first immediate months after prison. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it that and it's so critical. And I, you know, one of the things that I I do like, and I know we'll talk about this later, but is that people have been putting in initiative to help with employment stuff. I've seen a lot of organizations come um, and do employment training, help with job placements. Um, so that's really good. Um, at least those are things that are coming out. Um, but before we even get to those, I know that was a little jump ahead. Um, I want to spend us spend some time talking about barriers to employment. Um, I know our audience may be aware of obviously things like transportation. Um, you know, just the idea of a criminal record, which is the whole essence of this conversation. But I know in your work that you've done some things that we don't necessarily talk about of like job accessibility or just like residential location and why those are important um, and how that can be an obstacle for someone if they're formerly incarcerated. Yeah, um, we did some work looking at this idea of spatial mismatch, which is basically the idea that where people live are, is often pretty far from where a lot of the relevant jobs are. And so not only is the transportation, just the cost of transportation, getting transportation, that's challenging. But then if it's a really long distance that you have to travel between where you live and where those relevant jobs are, then that just you know exact, makes those costs even higher across time, money, all of that. And um, what we did was we were able to look at where these jobs are located, what we call job clusters. There are these regions, you know, in every labor market where there's these certain clusters of jobs, um, manufacturing jobs, warehouse jobs, other types of jobs that might be appealing to people coming out of prison, um, and then where people live. And what we found was, first of all, there was that mismatch, right, between where people live and these job clusters. And then second of all, if people are able to spend time in those job clusters, they're, they find a job faster than the people who are not able to spend time in those areas. And when I say spend time in those areas, I'm talking about not where you live, but where you travel to during the day. And so if you're able to travel to those places, 
um, even though you live sort of far away. And I know that that involves its own challenges, but if you're able to travel to some of those areas that are job rich, um, that can help improve your, your chances to get employment faster, to find that first day of work faster. Yeah, but for those who are not, makes it a lot more challenging. And I see what you're talking about there. So location really matters of, is it, I guess, it, is it location of where the job is or location of where you reside that yeah. is what matters? It is the combination of those two things. Okay. So, you know, it might be really hard. The policy implication here is that we just need to, when we're thinking about investment and reentry, we got to invest in making those transportation issues less challenging, giving people more transportation vouchers, helping them get transportation, you know, improving those sorts of things because maybe it's too difficult to change where a job cluster is or where people are able to get housing, but then maybe you can subsidize and, and with their transportation. And not only do are people doing that in reentry programs, you know, trying to provide more transportation vouchers, um, and that needs to be like upped, you know, a lot more, I think. But even apart from reentry, there are these different studies that are trying to give people money to help ease transportation, this location mismatch issue. And, and that can go a long way. If people just have the money and resources to try to get over some of these things, you know, um, and that can that can improve the, the challenge. Yeah, and I, I like what you said there because it's the kind of that thing of we can't control where the jobs are. And a lot of times, especially for people with that have records, we can't control where they get housing at either. But what we can do is focus on transportation and we can all find a way to, okay, what can we do here to make this a little bit easier to where it is beneficial to both the individual and to the business? Because um, if we get the people to work, the work gets business. <laughs> and then it's kind of like a win-win there. Um, so I see, I, I really like that because that is such a big issue. And and then when you look at uh, even more rural communities, it becomes an even bigger issue because city, rural people don't have the same transportation opportunities that urban cities do. Um, and it, things just get a lot more complex. We said this at the very beginning, things just get more complex the more you know, <laughs> the more you learn. Um yeah, that is, you know, and I, that's something I never, I never thought about of, um, like, I, I, granted, being in the field, like, I'm aware job needs to be, jobs need to be accessible. People need to be able to get to them, but really reading about this spatial mismatch and, like, the issues of it, I'm like, you know, I never really thought this deep into this maybe as I should have and how this is such a challenging and concerning thing for people. Yeah, definitely. It it becomes super complex. Yeah, for sure. And so, you know, we, I think we've talked a little bit about the, well, we've talked a lot about, you know, the formerly incarcerated people. There's another layer to this of employment, uh, you know, as much as their criminal record is a barrier for them, um, there's also some employer aversion as well 
do you care if we spend a little bit of time of talking about what, you know, what makes it difficult for an employer to want to hire um, somebody who has a criminal record? Yeah, um, a lot of employers are very willing to let you know that they're not going to hire someone with a record. And, you know, there is a lot of employer aversion to hiring people with a record out there. Um, and partly it's because, you know, if you have two similar candidates and one has a record and one doesn't, just in this labor market, you're going to go maybe with the person who doesn't have a record because you're worried about future risk. You're worried about, you know, if something were to happen to a coworker, that coworker can sue the employer. There's a lot of liability that an employer could take on. Um, and so, so for some employers, they, they don't want to hire someone with a record because they want to minimize that risk. Um, and, you know, I think that 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 is that makes sense from an employer perspective, but when it where it becomes problematic is if the record is you know kind of overwhelms all the other positive skills, characteristics, attributes that that job applicant is bringing to the table. And that's when we start referring to the criminal record as taking on this sort of master status. When the record status that overwhelms all these other things, then you know it's no longer just one factor that the employer is considering, it's this overwhelming factor. And so there's a lot of policies out there right now, like ban the box, fair chance hiring, that's trying to minimize that master status idea and kind of make it into one characteristic that an employer is considering, uh, you know, along with all the other positive things that that person is bringing to the table. Yes. And, you know, I'm glad you said that we actually have an episode on master status. So if you all have not caught that episode and you just need a reminder of what that master status is, please go listen to that episode. Really great episode. And I'll make sure I put it in the description box as well. But just a little commercial break there. Um, <laughs> but no, honestly, though, that is what happens is that stigma of this kind of like felony conviction starts to um what is the word that I'm looking for um I guess it doesn't really matter um it starts to cloud uh, all the other you know positive things that this person may bring to the table the skill set that they may have um and that becomes the central focus of well I don't want to hire this person because of this despite the fact that they have skills in this, 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 and the third, they've made these efforts to, um, you know, turn their life around, you know, and people don't really, they don't really get past that checkbox sometimes to even be able to explain that. But there are efforts, like you said, ban the box, uh, the fair chance hiring initiative. Um, they've all made efforts to support these individuals and make help make the process a little bit easier um to where they can at least get to the interview because that that's, was also a big issue that's right that's right and that's the intent of those sorts of policies is to be able to get past that initial job application checkbox you know let's remove that checkbox off of that job application so people can get their foot just to that next stage 
to that interview stage and they can explain the record. They can talk about it in their own terms. They can talk about all the other things that they bring to the job position apart from the record. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, and I think what, earlier you said, like, from an employer's perspective, yes, they are trying to minimize risk. But I also think what people fail to recognize is as much as you are minimizing risk for your business, we're maximizing risk for our community. Um, mm -hmm. Because then they have to go back into these odd jobs. Some of them may be illegal jobs, which further put our community at harm. Um, put them at harm and put them back into our system. And yeah. I don't think I don't think people think that they don't think that far down the line about those things. What I also, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I also really like about the second chance hiring movement is that people are trying to refocus employers to say, yeah, there is this risk element, but there are all these other really amazing things that people bring when they have that record. They are incredibly committed. When they get that opportunity to have a good job, incredibly committed to that job, you know, really dedicated, uh, really, really amazing work ethic. You know, there are these other things that people are bringing to the table. So if you think of it in a more holistic way, yeah, there might be that risk part from the record, but there's all these other things too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, and we, we focus a lot on risk in the field and we, you know, we don't pay attention to some of the other things like what you're saying is there's a lot that come with these individuals. And when they get a job, I know many of people who have felony convictions and when they get a job, they're some of the most loyal they're not customers. They're some of the most loyal employees that they have because one, they need their job. And two, a lot of them know trying to go back out there and find another job is going to be more difficult. So they're more likely to be committed to the work that they're going to be doing. And I sometimes I wish people could see that. And I love the um, places like that hire uh, exclusively formerly incarcerated. I know a bunch of businesses that do that, but it's just the, I, what you were saying, they need the opportunity because once, if you allow them the opportunity, then they can make their decision of where they're going to do right or whether they're going to do wrong. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I know we've talked, uh, we've kind of made our way through the conversation of talking about barriers. We've talked about, um, employer aversion we've talked about uh, you know what their kind of daily search looks like and I think it co it comes down to this next question of, of what recommendations or suggestions um, or considerations would you have uh, or based off your research to better support these individuals um, to find employment and give them that opportunity yeah there's a few things so number one, I think that going back to what we talked about at the beginning, the jobs in the country just generally, regardless of whether or not you have a record, are so anything we can do to strengthen these service sec primarily service sector jobs, but just lower wage, lower skilled jobs, anything we can do to strengthen those jobs across the board is going to help people who have records as well as others who don't. And I think, you know, that's an important point just to put out there. 
in terms of people who are who have the record and are looking for work, I will say that I am a supporter of Ban the Box and Fair Chance hiring. And in academia, that's actually quite a controversial statement to say, because there's a lot of debate about the effectiveness of those laws. Um, and I, I think that those laws are important to keep promoting and to actually make sure that they are better resourced to, to, to actually have the teeth to go after employers who are violating those laws. Right now we're passing ban the box fair chance laws without the capability to enforce those laws. So that's the thing I would say about, you know, a lot of people say, well, those laws are not working. They're not, you know, employers are still violating those laws, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that's a problem with the law itself. I think it's really a problem with how we enforce the law. And so if we can put more resources, give government agencies the ability to go after, you know, violations, then I think then we can better assess whether those laws are really working or not. But I, I think ban the box for chance hiring, second chance hiring, all of those things um, help to minimize the stigma of that master status for people. I definitely agree. Um, and those initiatives are definitely two that are pushing for and promoting for opportunities for people. And we just, like you said, we have to enforce them appropriately in the correct way for them to be sufficient um, and to work in their intended way. Um, but I do want to say thank you for those recommendations. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that our audience really learned something from us today and that there was something new that they could take away from us in this conversation. If there is, y'all be sure to engage with us throughout this week as we highlight this episode. Tell us what you learned. Uh, give us your critical thoughts on our conversation. Um, if there's any information that you want to learn about employment and reentry, I'll make sure that I put it in the subscription box. I'll also make sure that I put um, Naomi's um social media or any professional website that she has provided us with in the description box so you can go and learn more information about the work that she is doing um, I'm thank y'all for tuning in with us today and like I said if you enjoyed our episode please push the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram and more like the reentry podcast <laughs>